Welcome, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're watching and listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to Robert Goswitz, author of a brand new book called The Dragon Soldier's Good Fortune. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Robert, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thank you, Laurel. It's nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you as well. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience since you could probably do a better job at it than I? Well, okay, I'll claim something very unique. I'm a 70-year-old debut author, and I'm a retired teacher. I spent 35 years as a special education teacher in southeastern Wisconsin in various school districts. Uh, Before that, uh, I was drafted into the U.S. Army and spent a year in Vietnam in an infantry company, and that's what my story's about. I'm a Wisconsin guy and uh, cheesehead, and um, still living here on the banks of the beautiful Bark River in southeastern Wisconsin. And today we're experiencing a beautiful spring day at 60 degrees for the first time since October. Oh, don't even say that. You know where I live, right? 13,000 feet. It, well, the town is actually around 10,000, but okay. yeah, 13 and 14 all around me. And oh, it's colder. I'm sure you've seen the news, all the avalanches all around us. It's been a crazy, crazy snow snow year. But, you know, it's winter in the Rockies. What what should we expect? (laughs) Winter. I understand you just got back from the dentist. Tell me now, did you just go and get your teeth whitened just for the show? (laughs) No, but I got my hair done on the way home. (laughs) Looks great. I'm supposed to ask which one, but, you know, that would be... (laughs) We uh, we chatted a little bit earlier, and we were a little bit concerned that you might not be able to enunciate clearly after right. your dental appointment. So I'm, even though that would have been funnier, I'm glad that everything worked out well. <laughs> I'm not talking so, funny, am I? No. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so, Robert, why why this book? Why did you write The Dragon Soldier's Good Fortune now at, as you right. said, 70? Right. That's, that's the question people ask me. How come you're coming out with this book now? Well, you know, I was in Vietnam, and I was in the last infantry unit in Vietnam. And while being on continuous patrol, I saw some exotic and unbelievable places and had some very unusual experiences. And I came back from Vietnam with a head full of stories. But I had no particular training in writing. I have no background specifically in writing. You know, I had a college degree, and I was I was serviceable as a writer, but I would certainly wasn't what I would call literary. And, well, anyway, I got out of the Army uh, from Fort Hood, Texas, on a Friday, and on Monday I started graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. And certainly that took all my time, and I had no time for writing And well, then I became a husband, and then I became a teacher, and then I became a father, and then I became a homeowner, all wonderful things that everybody wants to have in their life and makes for a fulfilling life. But when it comes to writing, you just kind of put it off. 
you just kind of put it off. I never really had long stretches of time where I could write. And of course, I didn't really know how to write, you know, really write at a literate level. So what happened was I was able to get down 20 sketches of the most important stories over, over those years, over those decades, as they went by and went by and went by. And then I retired from teaching in 2007 after 35 years as a special education teacher. And of course, the first thing you have to do is travel for two or three years, which, which is what I did. And then, you know, we were, we were, we slowed down our travel pace. And my wife said, uh, you got to get back to that book. And, uh, I said, yeah, I do. Where is it? (laughs) And we found about two thirds of it in a file cabinet. And we found about another third of it in my, my wife being the great detective she is, she found another third of it in the back of my sister's closet in Mequon, Wisconsin. We'd been passing it around it, you know, in various stages, you know, the stories and it had gone this way and that way. But luckily we were able to accumulate all of those 20 accounts. And I started with a big piece of paper and I said, I'm going to travel the nation and I'm going to learn how to write and I'm going to start working on this pile of paper here. So I, I did that. You know, I went to writers' conferences. Um, I started, I joined writers' groups, both uh, in person and online, getting feedback on my writing. And every time I got a little bit of information, I changed my writing style and I changed my stories. And over a period of yeah, probably eight years, it started shaping itself up. And lucky for me, uh, one of the conferences I went to was the Military Writers' Society. Mm-hmm. And that's a group of published military writers. There was a woman in military writers by the name of Kathleen Rogers, a Texas author who's published. And her genre in the military uh, community is the wife of the career soldier. And her husband was 20 years career Air Force, flew A-10s. And you may have read some of that genre where it's the story of what it's like when the men go to war and the families are left behind. You know, that was quite a story. I mean, they really go through a lot. But anyway, Kathleen took me under her wing, introduced me to everyone, introduced me to my literary agent, introduced me to my editor. Of course, my literary agent kind of looked at me or, you know, she she wasn't necessarily real keen on taking a look at my manuscript right away, you know. Why not? Well, you know, she was just busy, and, and I understand, and she was, I, I, and I started following her. Her name is Jeannie Loicano from Dallas, Texas, and I started following her, and she was putting out books. You know, she had authors putting books out, and I, I would email her, and I'd say, well, you know, I really am ready to share my manuscript with you. What do you think? And she says, I'm busy, maybe in a couple months, and after about a year and a half, I got, a, I got an email from her, and she said, you still got that manuscript? I said, yeah. She says, send it. So I did. And a month later, I got a contract from her and I got my first look at track changes editing. And she had all kinds of blurbs and red lines and, you know, everything. Well, you know, track changes. Yes. And she had completely edited the manuscript. And what one of the things that she wanted was more dragon. I had a small spot for the dragon in my story. We'll and get Richard, to we'll, we'll we'll get to the dragon in a minute. Yeah. But I I, I want to throw out a couple awesome writing tips to listeners right now because here you were oh a few years after you got out of the military, and yet you you took little bits of time to right. capture as you said different story scenes. Right. Uh, so you so you had that 
stuff to yeah. your book together when the time finally came and also going to conferences and working on your skill. I mean, that's really important. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, finally, she kept saying, this book needs more dragon, Robert, you know, and I'd write three dragon scenes, send them to her. She'd say, well, come on, let's have some more of that dragon. It was like uh, Saturday Night Live when the guy says it needs more cowbell. <laughs> this song needs more cowbell. Yes. And what she was doing was grooming me for the publisher she eventually found for me, Black Opal Books in Portland, Oregon. You may be familiar with them, but, yes. you know, they do a lot of uh, sci-fi mystery and romance and stuff like that. And so uh, within eight months of uh, working with Jeannie, I had a publishing contract. And then I was inside Black Opal Books working with their editor, who wound up being my fourth editor that I had as I, you know, made my progress through, yeah, four editors. Four editors. Yeah. yeah, and I understand why they they keep saying you needed more dragon because it is called the Dragon Soldier's Good Fortune. Yeah, but let me ask you a little bit. Let me just skew this a different way. Sure. Why did you have to write this book? What was it? And and I know time and time and time had passed. Yeah. But what was it in you that made you want to share this with the world? Well. You know, I was one of millions of guys who went to Vietnam, and everybody has their story, and I'm sure it would be interesting if it was, you know, if, if they would tell it. But, for instance, the beginning of my tour of duty in Vietnam, spending my first night in Vietnam in jail. Now, that's unusual. So you are Private Ed Lansky. You are yes. the main character. In the that, that can be revealed at this point. <laughs> spent my first night in jail in Vietnam, got busted for smoking weed. And then three weeks later, I got a military award for being the last man in America that I did not deserve, of course, but they decided to give it to me. So, you know, the amazing irony of it just was overwhelming to me. And then some of the other experiences I had when I finally got with my, mil with my infantry unit and some of the exotic things that happened to me. You know, it just kept coming at me that this was, for me anyway, really unique, you know, and really special. And, you know, the close calls, the escapes, you know, uh, coming back and saying, I'm alive. <laughs> I made it. You know, all of that hit me so hard and I, and I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it away. And this story, this, you know, everything about Vietnam is still with me to this day. And not many people share their stories from Vietnam. That story that you tell about the last man. Yeah. The last man assigned plaque, that award that you got, that's an actual thing that they That actually did? happened to me. I, describe that a little bit because that was, I was a little okay. bit blown away by that. All right. Well, now you have to take into account the time, 1971. Just before that, Richard Nixon, the peace candidate, had been elected president of the United States with the promise he was going to bring the troops home, and he, he did follow through on that. He, so all the division size units, Marical. America was just on its way home when I got there. First infantry, you know, all the big units had been removed from the field. They'd been withdrawn from the field and taken home. And the Americal Division in September of 1971 was just also in the process of withdrawing, 12,000 guys withdrawing from the field, processing out of country, getting on a plane and going home. Now, if you follow the story, I was sent from Cam Cameron Bay, the, uh, you know, Cameron Bay because of some of the issues that I had down there. And I was sent to a unit that was preparing to go home. That's the truth. Because they wanted to get rid of me in Cameron Bay, they just sent me anywhere. And they sent me to the 25th Infantry Headquarters in July. Okay, so, you know, as soon as I get off the plane, 
there's a you know salty sergeant there you know he's he's looking at my orders and he he's going i can't figure out why you're here you know why are you here we we are going home the last thing we need is an infantry replacement an fng by the way you were the fng FNG. all right right and you know that you know about that and NG is new guy, and you can <laughs> the F stands for. And we can fill in the blanks with the F. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where I was. So they didn't know what to do with me, and everybody that I talk to, they say, what the heck are you doing here? We can't figure out why you're here. And, you know, I thought, well, I can't really tell them what happened getting busted in my last unit for smoking marijuana. I just didn't want to start a new unit by telling them I was in jail in the last unit. So I said, uh, well, I was on guard duty and they held me over, you know, and everybody could tell I was a liar because I'm a terrible liar, but I kept on with it. You know, at least I, I, I stayed with my story and they didn't know what to do with me. And so um, they just put me in the back of there's this uh, accounting office or personnel office. Again, I'm not even sure what it was, but they said, just go sit back there in that desk and we'll try to figure out. I, he says, I'm going to have to find an infantry assignment for you, but it's going to take a while. And so you, in the meantime, you just go back and sit at the back of that, that hooch there. So about a week went by, and suddenly one morning, an office, a, colonel, a colonel shows up, walks in. He has an entourage. And the NCOIC in the front, he stands up, he salutes, he's talking, and then he's laughing. And he turns around, he points right back, and he's, he's back there, that guy, that guy back there. And I thought, oh, boy, they found out about Cameron. I mean, they're going to put me in jail or can't court-martial me or something. And the whole entourage marches back. And the, I pretend I'm busy. I pretend I'm filling out a form that I found in the door. And, and you're, you're 19? I was 21. 21? Yeah. <laughs> Scary. And... He says, he stands over me, he's quiet, and he says, Private Goswitz? I said, yes, sir, I stand up. He says, congratulations, son. He says, I have the honor of informing you are the, you are the last man in AmeriCal replacement number 98,742, and we are going to honor you today here, and by doing so, we're going to honor all those that went before you. <laughs> so the aide says, well, the pictures will go better outside in the sun, so outside we go, and they give me the plaque which had my name and social security on it and, you know, a map of Vietnam and the crossed flags of the American and South Vietnamese flag and the, uh, the great arm patch of uh, America, which is the Southern cross on a blue shield. So they're taking pictures and, and that picture wound up in stars and stripes magazine, which every GI from uh, Tokyo to, to Bangkok read that next week. And so then uh, one of the aides says, uh, yeah, the colonel's grilling you a steak today. So uh, at noon, be at the officer's mess. And sure enough, there I was, <laughs> sweating bullets. So we, so we won't say too much more about this yeah. because... But it anyway, is, this I mean, is a true story. And to, to get the conclusion, you'll have to read the book. It's, I mean, it's, co- it's comical in a way. <laughs> it's comical in a big way. Was it, was it propaganda? Well, uh, you know, they were coming to an end. Their, their days were done in Vietnam, and I think they were just searching around for some little ceremony to make it uh, notable or, you know, to, to kind of put, a, put, a, put some closure on their, their leaving Vietnam. Something, and they chose, something positive. <laughs> yeah. And I, I never told my story to any of them. I, 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 they, ne- they never knew uh, what was the truth about me. That's but, you know, you, when you come up with stuff like that, how can, you, how can you make that up? Right. And I thought it ought to be in a book. <laughs> well, I, I agree. I, all the things that you have in here, 
commodity in this book, and they are. And so thank you for, for doing that. You start the book with a racial conflict between right. black and white soldiers. Why did you start with that? Because it happened all the time, because it was so persistent, because it was so chronic, and it was a constant issue. And you can't blame a person for not wanting to be drafted. I do not blame a person for not wanting to be drafted. You didn't want to be. I didn't want to be drafted. That's for sure. I, I didn't want to go there. And, you, you know, you would have to say that all of the issues that existed in America in the late 60s and the early 70s, they didn't just go away when people went in the Army. They went across the Pacific Ocean with the Army to Vietnam, and they existed within the Army. So the racial turmoil that was was going on in the late 60s, early 70s, it just came right along. And it made you worry. It, It made you wish that things weren't that way. The thing that I would have to say is, once you spent time in the bush with someone, it didn't matter so much what the color of their skin was. You could, you know, and you were sharing duties and you were sharing responsibilities and you were supporting each other. That kind of made bridges that allowed me to understand. And, you know, that's the thing about the infantry, especially during that era. I met people from every corner of the world. And, and that comes out in your book, it, yeah. the evolution of the relationship between a couple of the soldiers specifically. And, I, you know, yeah. no spoilers here, but, but that does come out in a, in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you got that. Not everybody gets that one. No, I mean, yeah, it was, it was great. You had some fun with names. (laughs) Yep. Sergeant Snufflewitz. Yep. That's right. I I did. And you know, I, I, I set that up because I wanted him to be called Snuffy and be dismissed as goddamn Snuffy. And (laughs) he was a bumbler. He was a bumbler, and he had a lot of swagger at 3 in the morning, and by the time 7 a.m. rolled around, he didn't have it anymore. (laughs) And there are bumblers everywhere. (laughs) In every walk of life. In every walk of life, right. (laughs) Your character, Chief. Yes. Why did you name him Chief in the book? Now, in in my mind, I conjured up an image, a one flew over the cuckoo's nest image of your chief officer. I guess I did borrow a little bit from that character, but Chief was a real guy. He was, I have him down as a Salt River Pima, but he was really a Hopi Native American who did not speak to anybody. And he did his duty and he was very, he was very good in the field. And he knew, always knew what to do and he, he could find out things that most people couldn't find out, but he did it all with hand gestures. And I can't remember ever having a conversation with him, no matter how much time we spent together. And is the first conversation that you had with him? actually the conversation that happens in the yes. book yeah, oh my gosh i don't even don't even talk about it don't even talk about it I, i'm just gonna say it was incredible oh you got that one too oh I'm come on reader oh my gosh it was ridiculous i want to read something i want i might read a couple things throughout sure. this hit, but you do a beautiful job of setting the scene and letting a reader be there with you in chapter two The jeep sped along a beach road, passing brightly colored fishing boats moored in the bay. The water so translucent, the sandy bottom so white, the reflected sunlight so brilliant, it gave the illusion that the green, yellow, and blue boats were floating on air. 
palm-covered islands dotted the far shore, the bay curved back on itself, ending in magnificent marble headlands protecting the harbor. Dark mountains obscured by mountain haze rose in the distance. I mean, beautiful. beautiful. You know, someone in a writer's group told me that passage did not fit in with the rest of my manuscript and I should strike it out. <laughs> Do you believe that? <laughs> Yes. And so we could talk about writers groups for just a little bit here. Yeah. Not everybody's motivated by by the uh, highest of ideals when, when they make comments in a writers group. This is true. And, and there, there can be jealousies and there can be, yeah, not all writers groups are good for writers. Yeah, I agree. Not, yeah. I, I think, I think that's beautiful. And, and throughout here, and you, you pace them beautifully. So it's not like, every single page is covered with description, but you put them in places where all of a sudden I'm there before the scene starts or when the scene starts. And yeah, you know, for me, setting is more important, I think, than most writers. Uh, I like that. I want the setting to actually be a character in the story. You know, I've heard a lot of writers say, don't bog down the reader with setting. Just get on with the story. Well, I I can't do that. I got to have setting. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let, me, let me read you another one. Outside a small restaurant, the smell of pepper sauce, cooked rice, and exotic spices mixed with the diesel urine odor of the street. Lansky looked into the humidity of the tiny blue and red shack. The patrons squatted with small bowls under their mouths, expressing rice to their lips using bamboo chopsticks. Torrents of sing-song conversation assaulted his ears. The faces were alike fervent. I mean, I'm there. I'm there. And, and this is a story about Vietnam. You have, right. you have to have scenes like this. Right, right. Yeah, thanks, boy. You're a close reader. I'm impressed. Well, that's what I do. Anyway, <laughs> I'm a writer, too. So yeah, have, you are. Have you, have you noticed that now that you've written this book and the time it's taken you to write this book, have you noticed that your reading has changed? I do pay closer attention to the structure of a story than I used to. You know, I just used to go along page to page just for pleasure. And now I, I, I pay more attention to dialogue, how it is structured. And that has a lot to do with the editors I've worked with. I pay more attention to the structure of the story and how the big scenes are set up and what leads up to them. What is left out? What is included? How descriptions are made? A big issue with me has always been how to use short sentences to add extra punch to mm-hmm. certain passages, which isn't always popular with everybody that I share my stories with. But uh, I, 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 I like it. You've got to you've got to have the punch every once in a while. That's why I dropped my glasses. I was going to do a punching motion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's necessary. You don't want the same sentence structure. No, no, it has to be over. It has to be buried. All right, so another another scene that caught me and brought me back to letters from my father from World War II, which right. I have loneliness. Uh, you're at the, uh, Ed Lansky is at the rehab clinic for right. junkies, soldier junkies. Right, and he's walking by it. He he's walking by it. it. Yeah, on the beach. It, yes, and all right, I just have to read this too. Lansky watched the man the man suck down his cool cigarette. How strange, remote, and sad this character was. All these men were, no matter how hard they partied, the loneliness and estrangement twisting them 
would always be there when they sobered up. I mean, just that, that feeling of desolation and loneliness and mm -hmm. no hope. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, something very pervasive. Uh, something that was a psychological issue for any guy. Well, any, you know, any guy being away from home for the first time, being in a foreign country, it's traumatic. And, you know, the, in, any adjustment to a new culture is shocking. I mean, I would go so far as to say shocking. And uh, especially when you're in a high pressure situation where you have life and death responsibilities, you know, you have those moments, you have those highs and lows. Um, you know, you have you have those moments of, of heavy, you know, excitation. Uh, you get that heavy contact buzz when you're involved in action. And then you, you have the necessary lows after that where nothing is happening and you're just alone with your thoughts and uh, you're lonely and you miss everybody at home and, you know, you're in a foreign place. And so it, 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 it's a psychological problem waiting to happen. I mean, heck, I spent three weeks in France my junior year in high school on a student <laughs> on a student exchange, and I was so homesick. Yeah, yeah. Three weeks in France in a beautiful <laughs> family, eating wonderful food. Right. And I was lonely. So yeah. I think you're saying that it's a, a shock is an understatement in a way, yeah. really. Do you have a favorite passage you might want to share? I do have a passage I want to share, and you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, I think the thing that I would claim as unique for my story would be my adventure into Vietnamese culture, specifically the use of the dragon. And, you know, I ran into literary agents earlier who said, what you need is something unique for your story. Because if you just write another of the 100 Vietnam infantry narratives, who cares? You know, that's not going to be something we can sell. So I, I went into Vietnamese folklore. I found the dragon. I realized that the dragon is like the symbol of Vietnam, just like the eagle is the symbol of America. And everywhere you look in Vietnamese culture, you find a dragon, and a dragon is good luck. And so I decided to pair that with Lansky's Close Escapes from Danger, and uh, it's, it's worked for me all along. And so the chapter that I'm going to read, or the passage I'm going to read, is chapter 8, and it's three weeks into Lansky's tour of duty in Vietnam. And he has gotten orders finally to report to his infantry unit, the 195th Brigade. And he has landed at the U.S. Air Force Base at Da Nang. A jeep is waiting for him to take him to 195th Brigade headquarters. But uh, between the headquarters and the foothills, he has to travel with his driver through the mysterious streets of the city of Da Nang. And by riding along with the driver and Lansky, we're going to get a glimpse of dragon culture as it exists on the streets of a Vietnamese city. You're going to listen to author Robert Goswitz reading a passage from his book, The Dragon Soldier's Good Fortune. A few days after the last man ceremony, Ed Lansky was put on a C-130 with orders to report to the 195th Light Infantry Brigade in Da Nang. A driver from Brigade HQ picked him up at the airbase. The large coastal city of Da Nang surrounded the airbase with narrow streets abuzz with the sounds of commerce in open air markets. 
Pedicab and pedestrian traffic clogged the street, so the jeep stopped often. During one of the stops, Lansky looked into a tiny storefront. The faces of the merchants and customers, their animated expressions, suggested this was more than bartering. Troubled faces with skin pulled tight by great emotion, skin so tight the faces were only thinly veiled skulls. A hole opened in the traffic and the driver shot forward, then jerked to a stop. Outside a small restaurant, the smell of pepper sauce, cooked rice, and exotic spices mixed with the diesel urine odor of the street. Lansky looked into the humidity of the tiny blue and red shack. The patrons squatted with small bowls under their mouths, expressing rice to their lips using bamboo chopsticks. Torrents of sing-song conversation assaulted his ear. The faces were alike, fervent. No one studied Lansky's face. No one in the restaurant even noticed him. If they had looked past his occidental cheekbones, they would have seen his trepidation. The driver started again, following a scooter through the crowd. The wall of people parted slowly, giving the Jeep only enough room to creep along. The driver slammed his hand on the wheel in frustration as people dodged the bumper of the Jeep. Happens all the time here, said the driver. Never can it get through this street. The Jeep pushed slowly through the throng. Lansky stared at an open building supported on poles. Several monks in saffron-colored robes stood on a small dais, swinging incense burners in a slow rhythm filling the building with a fragrant white smoke. Lansky smelled the sandalwood as the creeping jeep improved his view. Several rows of Vietnamese stood before the monk, mumbling a chant at a very low octave. They were dressed in traditional religious costumes. Women wore brightly colored au dyes, hair lacquered and coiffed gracefully up and back, Men sat in a row, ochre-colored robes flowing, beating on log drums, others striking dulcimer-like instruments. The crowd on the street focused on something in front of them, ignoring the driver's attempt to nose the jeep through from behind. A rapid sequence of loud explosions pulsed down the street. Lansky's companion reached under his seat, pulled out a forty-five pistol, chambered around and handed it to him. Here, safety's on. Keep it low, but be ready. The crowd had pressed a young woman against the jeep. She frowned at the pistol in Lansky's hand. When he looked at her, she shook her head in disapproval. No, harvest, she pointed out into the street. Lansky tried to reason out what she said. Then it came to him, harvest? He pointed with his free hand at the street. The young woman's face blossomed with a relieved smile. Yeah, harvest. Lansky looked at his companion. The girl says it's some kind of harvest celebration. Just keep cool. Let's see what happens. The driver's trigger finger drummed the magazine of the M16 now in his lap. The crowd became animated. A wave of energy rippled across the row of faces. Rhythmic clapping started. 
They cheered and pointed down the street, eyes wide with happiness. Another sequence of explosions went off in the street. Fireworks? Yeah, we probably overreacted. Oh, you can't be too careful in the Ville, but maybe you're right. This is some kind of festival. Let's take a look. They put the weapons between the seats and rose to a standing position. The young woman smiled at Lansky. He offered his hand, inviting her to stand on the Jeep floor, improving her view. She declined. Out on the street, a ceremonial dragon swung from curb to curb in sinuous undulation. It had green crocodile head, a white beard, glittering eyes, and a 25-foot long snake's body painted in multicolored detail. A dance team marched under the dragon, holding poles supporting each of the 12 hooped sections. They whipped the beast back and forth in a coordinated wave pattern. Drummers in scarlet tunics marched behind the dragon, banging out a beat the dancers used to time their turns. Fireworks popped and crackled in the street. Lansky looked at the driver. Seeing a dragon brings good luck. How do you know? I learned about dragons down in Cameron. Cool. When the dragon and the drummer passed, the crowd spilled out into the street and followed. Lansky's driver sat down. Let's go. They drove across the empty street. You do a beautiful job of juxtaposing the horrors of the actual situation of being in a country where you don't know which face is the enemy and the beauty and simplicity in everyday life of those people. Right. When you're an outsider in another person's culture, it's so easy to misunderstand. And so I have to ask you now, because you just read a passage about that dragon that went through on in the parade. Did you see a dragon? I did not see an actual dragon. I did not hallucinate. That was something that came along later uh, when I knew I needed something unique. Okay. I, I had a couple of rough outings with, you know, I'd go, to, I'd go to literary conferences, writers' conferences. I'd pitch literary agents, and they would say, got to have something unique. Yeah. Don't want another Vietnam book that's already been published. Because, you know, I came along well after many books had been published, and many of the great authors were already established. So I'm just kind of like on the tail end of everything. So unless I came up with my own thing, no one was going to, and I wouldn't blame them. Why, why would they? Who wants to read the book that's already been print published? And, and dragons, dragons are big now. We'll, we'll just say it. So that was, that was a good choice. And that is one of the things I got going for me as far as topical goes. One of the few. Right. And it, it is such a unique dragon. It really is. And, yeah. I, you know, you kind of had to love them in the book. Right. You do a good job with inserting comic relief every once in a while too. Your first sergeant Rodriguez. Absolutely right. loved got him. Rodriguez. Was, he was a real guy. He was a real he guy. He talked like that. <laughs> and he was he was a natural born leader. He could barely speak English, but there was something about that guy. People would die for him. They would do anything for him. He had way more authority than any high ranking officer around there. And Lansky slash you got his humor. Yeah. Which was nice. And so let me let me ask you personally, did you actually turn down a commission to go? I did. 
I, I, you know, that was one of the first things that happened in basic training because I had a college degree. They had me in seeing this officer and saying, we're going to sign you. I want you to sign this contract. We're going to send you to OCS. And I looked at the contract. It was an eight-year commitment. You know, I'm a draftee. I don't want to spend any time in the Army. And they're signing me up. Well, of course, you're going to be two years active. Then you're in active reserve. And there were stages. Like, I could have gone back in. If, I mean, they could have just called me back in at any time during those eight years. I don't know if they would have. But just the whole idea of eight years, I just, I could not sign up for that. Besides that, I would definitely say I realized I did not have military leadership in my heart. And as it turned out, it was best for me to do it that way because I wound up getting, uh, instead of spending two years in the Army, as the draftees did at that time, I got out three months early because I was going to college. So I wound up spending only 21 months in the military. Of course, 12 of those was in Vietnam, but that was a good deal for me because that was the end of my military service. And I'm sure glad it was because I did not want to have anything to do with marching in uniforms and being on duty and any of that anymore. I, I understand. Lansky evolves through the story, though, as a soldier. He well, does. I'm glad you could see that. Yeah. And did, did you? I did. I did. You know, of course, I was an NFG to begin with, didn't know nothing, and I really didn't know nothing. And as time, in, in, and I, was a new, I really was a new guy, and all of the guys that had been in my unit when I was first there had been in there, had been there eight months or ten months, and, and you could tell who had been there a long time and who was new. You could tell just by the way they walked down the trail, by the, by the way they put their pack together, by the way they conducted themselves, how they looked at things, how they decided when it was time to be tactical and stealthy and when it was time to be loose, you know. They knew. And as time went by, I mean, it's like, um, I guess it's like a prisoner in prison. You know, you acclimate. You... You do, every day you are making decisions that help you survive. And then you are realizing it's real important that I support that guy next to me because he's going to support me. And did you, um, did you almost really not make it out on that last mission? Actually, I was on the last patrol, okay? I, along with probably on, on that day, there were probably three companies of the 195th Brigade still in the field. So on that day, it was news. It was published. You know, I mean, it was, it was known within our unit that there was going to be a last day and a last patrol. And then we were going to be withdrawn and within a week be back in the States. So on that last day, I did go on a patrol, but we did not get ambushed. I made that up. Well, it was, it was very exciting. and I, I needed a conclusion that it, was satisfactory. It was, it was, Just going it was, on the last patrol and then getting out of there wasn't going to be satisfactory as far as I was concerned. Right. The ceremony over the tiger. Yeah. That was gorgeous. Yeah. Did that happen? Okay. The tiger did happen. We did have a tiger walk into one of our ambushes. And that was just unbelievable. It was, it was not only unbelievable because, you know, the Claymore went off, we emptied our weapons, didn't know what was out there. But then afterwards, you're laying there in silence, you've reloaded your weapons. And that's the thing with an ambush. You don't move, you know, after action. You wait for the enemy to make his move. And then you got, because it's pitch dark, mm -hmm. and you wait for the enemy to make their move. And then you got another target, at least to hear. 
So you start hearing this other tiger. I mean, we didn't know there was another tiger at the time, but you hear this yowling and this hissing, and you can tell something's circling you. You can tell. I mean, because of the sound, he was, he was not afraid to make his make noise. He was like, what the heck's going on here? I'm out here to investigate. I'm not afraid of nobody. So, to, so don't say what happened, but just it, it was just a really, really beautiful, poignant scene. The yowling. You, you do a beautiful job with onomatopoeia, too. I mean, the sound of the gunfire, you've got it throughout. And it's just like, oh, I'm there. I can hear it. Yeah. Why did you decide to bring him home and have him in a scene with the girls? Okay. The well, actually, I needed, if, if you remember the, the culmination where Huddle comes out of the rice paddy, wondering why he's still alive. And Lansky says, and he says, you know why I'm still alive, don't you, Lansky? And Lansky, is, his brain is too fried to explain it then. Yeah. And he says, we're going to get together and I'll explain it. So I just used that as an opportunity to kind of uh, bring some closure to, as much closure as possible. I, don't, I, I really didn't want to completely try and answer the question of was the dragon real or not. I didn't, even, I didn't want to do that. But I wanted to put some closure on it. You know, at, at, at least give the give the reader more choices when it you know more information, more choices, and so I used that whole trip there to Mexico to just kind of lay that one to rest there. And again, it's a great juxtaposition of his life in Vietnam and then his brand new life, which had to have been a huge transition to to overcome. All of a sudden, you're. Uh, Kind of yes. doing silly things in a way. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's funny because um, that one day I was walking the last patrol. A week later, I was sitting in my girlfriend's apartment, her girly apartment in Portland, Oregon, and I'm sitting for the first time in months inside an apartment. In, you know, I spent just about my entire tour of duty outdoors. And wet and soaking and damp. Slept on the ground. Uh, when it rained, I got wet. Everything about me was outdoors, like reverting to previous forms, caveman, animal kind of a person. Suddenly, I'm sitting in a girly apartment in Portland, Oregon. And my girlfriend was trying to be understanding. <laughs> but I just made a mess of that place every day because a shower? You know, I, I didn't have showers. Uh, we would have cold showers once every 12 or 13 days back in the company area. That was just so exotic to me. I just couldn't believe it. I'd take an hour shower and leave the towels, leave a complete mess. If I was drinking orange juice, I'd leave the orange juice out. I'd spill it and not clean it up. She had this apartment on the side of a hill in Portland, Oregon. And Portland, Oregon is a huge city that has a large river going through it and ocean going ships sail through downtown. And so I was smoking weed and drinking and watching the ships sail along there. And what you could see was just the superstructure of the ships kind of passing through the downtown buildings. And the more I drank and the more I smoked, the more fascinating that got. And my girlfriend would come home. She'd work. She was working and she'd come home at night and she'd look around and she'd say, what did you do? I'd say, you should see these ships over here. 
they're really something. You know, I was so completely, I had to completely learn how to live in society again. Yeah. I was an animal. I, I was, huh. and after about two weeks, she said, you got to go. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> and she was right in doing so. Well, it was, it was definitely an interesting way to end the story. Who, yeah. took, who took the photos that you sent me? And by the way, I'll have these photos on my website, ladbillaurel.com. Uh, well, everybody had a camera and everybody passed the camera around and... You know, I just had a camera and I'd say, hey, take this picture. Uh, some of the pictures I took, some of the pictures I said, hey, take this picture of me. And, and uh, you had a smile on your face and yeah. all the pictures that you sent to me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah I tried to maintain a good attitude. I wasn't happy every day. <laughs> no, I, that's, that's clear in your book. What's next? Is there another book? Okay, well, yes. I'm approaching 50,000 words on the prequel to The Dragon Soldier's Good Fortune, because I want to take a stab at explaining how, or, you know, where Ed Lansky's luck came from. And so, and then also it's based on my senior year in high school, which was also quite tumultuous. I was pretty wild. And it, again, I'm going into a little bit of magical realism, and it's kind of a mashup of Wisconsin history that goes way back to Native American culture and the geography and uh, the politics and so on of the times when I was growing up in, in high school. And um, so uh, it's going to take a couple of years, but um, yeah, it, so far it's going well. But I'm a seat of the pants writer and I don't know how it's going to end. Don't you love that? I, I love writing like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because it, surprises are nice. I like yeah. surprises in my books. The <sighs> title is um, St. Bernadine's Cross. Oh, what is okay. well, I, you know? I, I have a background as I was raised a Catholic, and Catholicism is big was big in in those days, and, and it was an important aspect in my life. But I'm also fascinated with some of the mystical uh, people, you know, the mystics that arose in the Catholic Church, the people that would claim to have visions of the Blessed Virgin. Mm-hmm. That was very fascinating to me. So I weave that into my story for some reason. I don't know why I decided to, but I weave that into my story. And then I'm off on a, that gives me my mystical connection to kind of weave into, a, a, you know, the rest of the story. And uh, also it includes mystical adventures related to Native American culture and a confusion of mystics. And, well, it's, it's too hard to explain. Uh, no, no, no. It, so, it sounds fascinating. Yeah. Who do you want to give a shout out to besides Black Opal Books? We've mentioned them. Right. Well, uh, I'm going to have to thank my agent, Jeannie Loicano, and uh, I'm going to have to thank my wife, who was my first listener, the person whose encouragement has meant so much to me. What's her name? My wife's name is Jody Goswitz, the person who figured out how to use the Zoom app to make sure I could have a video conference because I am low tech to be, you know, I'm completely low tech. Thank and, you. And she figures out everything. And to this day, we we're this uh, summer we're going to celebrate our 40th anniversary, and she has been the wonderful light of my life. And she knows me so well; she can tell me what I'm thinking, even if I never tell her. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is, that is pretty cool. Robert, where can people find your work? Okay, well, of course, I'm on Amazon, and that probably that is the easiest access. If you uh, type in Robert Goswitz, G-O-S-W-I-T-Z into in, you know on Amazon books or you type in the dragon soldier's good fortune um, you're going to uh, come up with my Amazon author page and have an opportunity to get my book 
And uh, anyone who wants to contact me, my email is rgoswitz at mac.com. That's R-G-O-S-W-I-T-Z at mac.com. Excellent. And I will have links to everything we talked about here on my website at letvillaurel.com. Robert Goswitz, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for this unique book. And best of luck with pushing out that second one. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Laurel. You're very good. Well, I enjoyed talking with you. You have a great day, though. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.